Something happened in my music stand. I got like the televangelist version tonight. I'm going to try to put it down here, but it's kind of short. How do you make this taller, girls? Anybody? All right, where's the cheesy one? There it is. There's a button. Don't talk to me about buttons. All right, no, we're good, we're good. Here we go. Thank you, Lindy. Thank you so much. Oh. (laughs) Now you're punishing me. I get it. I see how this works. There we go. No problem. Hey, you are here. I thought maybe nobody was going to come. I didn't even look up to see how many of you were here. You kind of trickled in on me there at the end. Welcome, and thank you for braving the inclement weather. We're happy that you decided to come out to Women's Bible Study tonight. May your faith be rewarded. We have been talking about, um, for the past two weeks, we've been talking about what are the marks of genuine belief. And we will continue to do so throughout the semester. And so far, James has told us that genuine faith perseveres under trial. And we looked at how there was that progression where it went from your faith to trials that test it that produced steadfastness, which ultimately produced maturity, right? And we said the maturity was the abundant life, that that was what life should be for the believer, is this mature living where we trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not to our own understanding. And then in contrast to that, we looked last week at how genuine faith resists and flees from sin. And we talked about temptation, right? We talked about that whole issue of temptation, and we saw a progression that was that we have these um, impure desires that then meet with temptation— which gives birth to sin, and when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so they were these two contrasting paths, one that led to life and one that leads to death. And so it makes sense now that James is going to move out of a discussion about temptation into talking about what is a huge temptation for all of us. Three things that we might be careful to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because the temptation for all of us is to do exactly the opposite. In fact, that is our natural inclination, isn't it? To be slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. Or maybe it's just me. I mean, I spent the whole week getting sucker punched in the face by this lesson, so watch out because I might bring it to you tonight just so we can all be sad together as we stare into this lesson about what it means to have control, not just over our tongue, but over our ears and over our anger as well. And we're going to look at how those three things are related. And so, uh, interestingly, at the end of last week, James wrapped up with this idea, at least where we stopped last week, the idea of don't be deceived, right? He wanted us to not be deceived. And what did he want us to not be deceived about? That there were good and perfect gifts that would come anywhere than other from the Lord. And he's going to say that word deceived two more times this week. He's going to caution us against being deceived in other ways. And then he talked about one good and perfect gift in particular in verse 18 at the end of the lesson. He said, of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so basically the very first good and perfect gift that you and I receive is that gift of salvation, that gift of rebirth given to us through the word of truth, who is who? 
Jesus Christ. That is right. And so he picks up this week in verse 19 where he is going to develop some of these thoughts even further. And this is what I want you to keep in mind as we're studying the book of James. Is we tend to study little pieces of it here and little pieces of it there. And even within this study, we had to break it up. I didn't think I could get you to all come and show up for like a straight teaching through the book of James because that would take me a week and a half for one thing. But we have to break it up into manageable increments, but never forget that this is a letter that is intended to be understood from start to finish. So that's why each week you should be thinking in terms of how does what we're reading now connect to what we were reading last week. And so he moves from a discussion about temptation and about rebirth and deception to be wary about deception into developing those thoughts further. So starting in Verse 19, he says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So let's just stop right there and sit on that one verse for just a few minutes. So three things, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And you notice that he says again this, my beloved brothers. So he wants you to understand that he speaks to you as someone who loves you and also as someone who identifies with you in this difficulty, in this struggle. So he says, know this, be certain of this. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So the Jewish rabbis often reflected that we are given two ears but only one tongue. Yeah, we spend, and our tongue is actually walled in behind a set of teeth. Like, (laughs) stuck in there. But what do we do? Which one do we use more? We use the tongue more than we use the ears. And I asked you in your homework this week, I said, um, do you, um, which of your primary relationships would be most impacted by you following this advice that James is giving, or dare I say following this command, not advice, that James is giving, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. You probably had a relationship that you thought of. Maybe it was your spouse. Maybe it was a child. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a co-worker. There was someone who would have really benefited from you taking this command to heart and changing the way that you approached them. But What we have to consider is that in the context of what James is discussing here, we need to consider the primary relationship that most needs us to take this advice is not actually one that's on this horizontal plane with others, but what? It's our relationship with God in which we need to observe this first. When we um, approach our relationship with him, are we quick to listen? Or do we tell God a lot of things? Are we slow to speak? And are we, why would we become angry? Well, let's, let's look at that. Let's look at that a little bit. But you know that further on, James is going to tell us to gaze into the mirror of the word, right? He's going to tell us to do that. And what he's saying is you need to gaze into it. And when you're doing that, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That is the context. Now, if we can get that right, if we can understand how to do that in this vertical relationship, then absolutely doing that in all of your horizontal relationships is going to make a big difference. But think about this command here to be quick to listen. Well, in the context of your vertical relationship with the Lord, it means be quick to listen to the word of God, right? And so that's what we're doing. We're coming here to help learn how to do this. But think about it for a second before we look at it in a heavenward sense. Think about the way that we are quick to listen in our human relationships. Is anybody in here a good listener? I hope there's more than one of us because I really need to unload and I'd like to talk to you afterwards. 
Good listening is a skill, right? And you could even take a class or you could read blog posts that would tell you how to be a better listener. And what are some of the things that people would tell you if you were looking to be a better listener in your human relationships? Um, One of the first things that they would tell you you need to do is you need to eliminate distractions, right? So um, you might go meet someone for coffee instead of inviting them over to your house. Because if your house is like mine, it's like this giant jungle gym with teenagers all over it. And so even within my own house, if one of my children wants to talk to me about something, it's on me to say, you know what, let's go in the other room. Not even necessarily because it's private, but just because we need to eliminate distractions and get somewhere where I can focus my attention on her. So in human relationships, we know that this is a really important thing to do. And what is one of the main obstacles that keeps us from focusing on one another? Come on, I just got a new iPhone for my birthday. And I love to give my eyes to that iPhone. And you know what one of the first things is that I taught my children when they were really little? The first thing I taught them was stop because that felt like an important one to nail down. But the second thing that we taught them after they learned stop was look at mom, right? So we're in the parking lot and someone wants to run out in front of a car. First I say stop and they knew they had to stop. And then I would say look at mom. And then I would say come back over here and hold my hand. Okay, okay, mom. So we had a little script that we would go through. But why did I do that? Because getting their eyes meant I was getting their wills, basically. Because what happens when you start telling a child, look at my eyes, what are they going to do? Right? They won't do it. They start looking away. They won't give you eye contact. And why is that? Because they know. Those little son of a guns know. But this is part of what we do. We eliminate distractions and we say, it, it means that I'm focusing on you when you give me your eyes. And so what was interesting is that the whole screens being all through my house and proliferating has happened in the later years of my parenting. And now my children will say to me, Mom, look at my eyes. Because they know, and not in a disrespectful way, like they know that when someone gives you their eyes, they're giving you their attention. And so we give our eyes to a person when we are actively listening, and we eliminate distractions. And then what do we do? We focus on the one who is speaking, right? So it doesn't matter what you've got going on. You slow down, and you try to enter into what the person is saying. And then what is something else that a good listener does? They repeat back things that are being said to them. And not like in a, in a mimicking way at all, but in a sort of like, I'm processing what you're saying and here is what I'm hearing you say. So if my daughter is freaking out because she's not getting her homework done, I'll say, so, okay, so basically what I'm hearing you say is that you've got this due and this due and you also have a practice you need to go to and you're not sure how you're going to work all that out, right? Yes. So active listening is asking, is repeating back. And then I would ask questions to clarify what's going on. You know, well, can you move your practice around? You see what I'm saying? But so I'm entering in, or I might say, well, what do you think is really making you frustrated right now? Is it because you're tired? You know, things to kind of help her think through what's going on. And then lastly, we would listen for ways to identify and respond. So if my daughter's freaking out over her homework, I can say, I'm sorry, you do have a lot to go, you know, a lot going on. And I try to enter in and empathize as far as I'm able to um, and to find a response. And then, but what's the hard thing? is that when you're being quick to listen, you also have to be slow to speak. Because have you ever had someone who you're pouring your heart out to them, and then as soon as they have a second to jump into the conversation, they either change the focus to something that happened to them that's very similar to what you're going through, or they have like a full action plan hatched on how they're going to fix your problem in five or six sentences? Maybe men do this. I don't know. Could be spouses sometimes. Sometimes. 
You know, and you're like, I don't need you to solve my problem. I just need you to listen. And they don't really get that, right? Sometimes. Some people don't. Because that's not active listening. That's problem solving, right? Or it's the person who's like, you think that's bad. You know what happened to me? And then you're like, oh my gosh. Okay, so we know what bad listening looks like, right? And then we know what good listening looks like. So take what you know about good listening habits and now apply that to the way that we should listen to the Lord. Because there are so many correlations we should eliminate distractions, right? We need to find time when we're not being pulled in a thousand different directions to sit down and enter into the presence of the Lord by studying his word, by opening up his word. And then we focus on the one who is speaking. So we shut down that internal dialogue that's telling us what we need to do next and all the things that are more important. And we focus on what is being said, okay? This is what some of your homework does, right? It just says, what is it saying? Pay attention to what it is saying. And here's another thing that your homework does. We said that a good listener will repeat back what they're hearing being said. Guess what? When I have you paraphrase in the homework, that's exactly what I'm trying to get you to do. Try to process what you're hearing and reflect it back. Try to gather meaning from it. Try to identify with what's going on. And then another thing that we said was good in active listening was to ask questions to clarify the discussion. That's your homework again, right? We ask questions. We don't always come up with the answers, but even by asking the questions, we clarify more what the issues are and where the gaps are in our understanding. And then I said we listen for ways to identify and respond. Isn't this when we try to apply? Isn't that the same thing where we look for a way to say, okay, well, what should I do with this when we're studying the Word? And we have to resist the urge to interrupt with self-focused commentary. Well, what this verse means to me, and I think the Lord is saying, you know, it's okay to ask what this verse means to you, but not until you've asked what the verse means, right? So we have to spend time being good listeners before we can hear well what the Lord has to say. We have to resist the urge to interrupt even in those settings. And so when we are quick to hear with the Lord and we are slow to speak, we begin to have better listening skills in relation to him. But then that whole slow to become angry. Why would we become angry if we're sitting and listening to what the Lord has to say? Well, I think James is the perfect place for us to talk about this. Because when you're reading through and you feel conviction hit you about sin... Sometimes our first response is to get angry, isn't it? And to self-justify. So at my house, we, we have a saying for this. And it's that whole being slow to speak and, and not getting angry thing. Because it wraps itself up in one word, and that word is but, B-U-T. And so I will say, hey, um, it was your laundry day because we have laundry days. And by assigning laundry days, I have resolved absolutely zero of my laundry problems. But it was worth a try. So everybody is supposed to have one day where they do their laundry. And then so that means if your stuff is still in the laundry room on the next day, something has gone terribly wrong and an explanation is owed. And so if I say to a child, hey, um, I noticed your laundry is still in there. It's Tuesday and your day was yesterday. You know, you need to get your stuff out of there your day's over, do I need to have some sort of consequence? And you know what they will say? Oh, mother, I just want to please you. Let me go and do that right now. No, usually what they'll say is, 
they'll say, uh, but I had a lot of homework, or but I had to do that, you know, or but someone else's stuff was in there, and do you hear the, the but just starts up, right? And so in order to add a little levity into an otherwise tense interaction with an adolescent, we began to say, your butt is hanging out anytime someone would do that, just to kind of like diffuse the tension because that was always a bad word. You know, when they were little, you didn't say that word. And so it's, you know, hey, I'm sorry, your butt's hanging out. Can you go get your laundry out of the laundry room now? Thank you. You know, just kind of a gentle warning of you are not being slow to speak. In fact, you have an answer for every single thing that I have said because I know that you feel like you're coming under conviction and you don't like it, and it makes you angry and you want to answer back. And we do this with the Lord. Lord, I know that I was impatient with my kids today, but, Lord, I know that I haven't gotten a decent meal on the table in six weeks, but, and actually that's kind of a personal example right now that hit a little close to home. You know, we have all of these measures for why we didn't do the thing that we feel convicted about. But what if we were quick to listen and slow to be speak? What if we made our words few and we set aside anger and defensiveness and let the word of the Lord do its ministry in our hearts? And why should we set aside our anger? Because who is slow to anger with you? It is the Lord himself who has every reason to be angry with you, but has set his anger aside by placing it on the one against whom he would never be angry. His perfect son poured out his wrath on him instead of you. But you get angry when he calls you on sin and when he does so in such a way that is for your good. It's a good and perfect gift that the scripture brings us under conviction. So, we need to be in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to be angry because God is slow to anger with us. Now, I asked in your homework, when is, um, when is your anger righteous or is there such a thing as non, on, oh, can't talk, unsinful anger? And I'm pretty sure you answered, there has to be a form of unsinful anger. Why? Go ahead. Because Jesus got angry, that's right. And did you find a place in Scripture where he got angry? Most people know about the overturning of the tables in the temple, you know, which is known to unbelievers as the day Jesus went postal. And then there's another story, although actually it was not that at all. He didn't lose it, you know. I mean, this, was, this is what righteous anger looked like. And then there's that other day where he heals a man on the Sabbath. Do you remember that? He had a, the man had a withered hand, and the Pharisees are saying, oh, let's see if we can catch him, because is he going to do work on the Sabbath? And so Jesus says, you know, I'm going to do the more important thing. He basically throws a question back at them to trap them. And it says that he was just filled with anger at them. So filled with anger. So we know that it is possible to be angry and not sin. Scripture tells us that. And you need to know that it is possible for you to be angry and not sin. That is absolutely true. And anger is our natural response, okay? It's, a, it's like any other emotion. It's almost like a pain sensor, okay? It's a natural response that we have to certain conditions. So what is it a natural response to? It is a natural response to having our wills violated, to having our wills violated. So if you have ever spent time around a couple of two-year-olds, you know how this plays out. They're sitting on the rug. One has the toy. The other one wants it. So he reaches over and he takes the toy. And then the first child does what? Whacks him on the head, right? Grabs the toy back. Gets 
mad, is slow to listen, quick to react, and quick to become angry. Why? Because his will's been violated. He wanted the toy. And so when our will is violated, this is the way we respond. And I submit to you that all of our adult interactions are actually just some sort of more, uh, more nuanced version of that interaction in the nursery. Someone violates my will, and I get mad, and I react. This is what road rage is, right? I mean, this is what happens when you're at Starbucks, and they make your drink wrong, and you just get furious. My will has been violated. I wanted a non-fat white chocolate mocha latte from Brazil, and they got me the one from Guatemala. I mean, what the heck? Come on, people. Right? Because we're just so quick to become angry. Why? Because our will was violated and so often violated on, on something that didn't even really matter. So you know what it is like to have, to see wrongdoing happen in the world. You know what injustice looks like, right? And that can make us angry too. We can watch the evening news and we can see that there has been a human rights violation and we grow angry. And why does that make us angry? Is that because our will has been violated? No, I think for the believer, it's because we look around and we say, this is someone who's made in God's image. And we understand that human rights violations are a violation not of our will, but of the will of God. This is the kind of anger that Jesus displays. He is not angry on behalf of his own will. He is angry on behalf of his heavenly Father's will being obstructed or broken. So do we experience righteous anger? Probably, but more often than not, is that what we're dealing in? No. We devote so much of our energy to, to defending our own will being violated. So Jesus has two recorded instances in Scripture where he becomes furious because the will of God has been violated, right? Someone is obstructing the will of God. And so you hear people say, well, see, I get angry, but it's okay because Jesus got angry too. And I think... Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure you're looking at that right. Because Jesus, think about this. He lived for 33 years sinless, okay? Never once violated the will of God, okay? In 33 years, he lived sinless. And he was surrounded to a man with people who routinely and habitually violated the will of God in his presence, Over and over again, day in and day out, people violating the will of God in his presence. And how many times does Scripture record that he was visibly angry? Twice in 33 years? I got angry the wrong way more than twice just today. We should be amazed at the level of self-control it would take. He spent all day, every day, feeling a righteous indignation at some level on his father's behalf, and yet he only manifests it twice. So we can't appeal to Jesus as our model for pushing the drama button. It's not okay. We have to be honest about what really bothers us. We have to be honest about what really stirs up our anger. And this is why we get angry when we feel conviction of sin hit us so often is because we know that our will is not going to be done on earth as it is in heaven if we submit our will to God the Father. And it's a hard thing for us to let go of. It's just hard. But James says it is the better way. 
And he says in verse 21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So here he is actually picking up on something that we talked about in verse 18 last week when he talked about us being brought forth by the word of truth, right? So listen to what he says here. First he says, put away all filthiness. And that word filthiness is literally translated earwax. Gross. But that's what he wants you to think. He's like, put away all that nastiness. Be done with that. And put away rampant wickedness. And by that he means deliberate and determined sin. Put those things away. Peter would say in his, his epistles, you've spent enough time. You've spent enough time living like the pagans do. Put that away. And it says, and receive with all meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Okay, so we need to be clear on what is meant here because it says receive the implanted word which is able to to save your souls. Well, how can I receive the word if it's already implanted in me? Because we talked last week about how that first good and perfect gift is that the word is implanted in us. And now he's telling me you need to receive that word so that your soul can be saved. So I don't understand. How does this work? Does this mean that I'm only partially saved when I receive the implanted word? Well, I mean, yes and no. You have to understand the different way that scripture uses this idea of salvation. Okay, so I use the three P's to teach this. And I think this morning I only told them the first two and I left them hanging on the third one. But tonight, this is why it's good to come to the evening, girls. You get the full meal. So in salvation, there are three different phases to our salvation. Okay, so the first is justification. And that's when you came to saving faith. That's when you were reborn. And at that time, you were freed from the penalty of sin. That's your first P. Okay, that means that the penalty that you deserved for having offended God and for having violated his will was paid, that Christ paid it in full, and you were saved. You became a believer. But then are we done with salvation? No. Then sanctification begins. We move from justification to sanctification, and that is the process that happens from the point that you become a believer to the point that you go to glory to be with the Lord. It's this lifetime that we're in right now. And during this lifetime, you're free from that second P, which is the power of sin. So you spend this lifetime having the power of sin broken in your life progressively as the Lord transforms your desires. You learn to desire the better thing. And you become a slave, as James describes himself, to righteousness instead of to sin. It doesn't mean that we stop sinning. But it means that we want to stop sinning. And that is what we are working toward and wanting to be our reality. And we do eventually begin to master certain sins. And so the third P, I'm not going to leave it out tonight, paying attention, is when we die or if the Lord returns and we go to be with him. And at that point, we are freed from the third P, which is the presence of sin. There will be no sin in heaven. And that is good news. Good news. Nothing to be angry about there. So... Um, when, Jesus, when James says to, to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, what he is saying is you have the implanted word, you have the beginning of this, and now you need to receive it. You need to let it come to full fruitfulness in your life because it is delivering you from the very power of sin. The power of sin that actually makes you sin in your anger and your speech and in your inability to listen. But if you will receive the implanted word, it will do its work on you. And then he says in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourselves. So did you hear that? There's that theme of deceit again. And what does he say? Apparently, we are able to deceive ourselves that just sitting and listening to teaching like this or just having your quiet time every morning, that's plenty. That's good. Thank you, Lord. Just bless my heart today. But what does James say about that kind of faith? That is not genuine faith. In fact, James is going to continue to emphasize throughout his letter that genuine faith always turns into action. And so he says here, don't just be a a hearer and not be a doer. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you think all you need to do is listen, you've missed the point. So I, I look at it this way. You may be able to paint by numbers, right? You can read the instructions and paint by numbers. But you're not an artist if you do that, are you? And you might be able to play chopsticks on the piano, But you're not a musician. A person who hears and does is a person who takes in and wants to have mastery and who wants to grow proficient and who wants to be someone who is different than they were before. And it's not enough to just hear a teaching that makes their heart feel warm. They want a teaching that sinks down into their very soul and divides them to the marrow and leaves them different than they were. So he says, don't just listen. Be someone who acts on what you hear. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, in verse 23, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So he gives us here a picture so that we can understand the importance of what is happening. And he says that someone who just listens and isn't changed by it is like someone who goes and looks in the mirror and sees everything that the mirror has to show them and then says, eh, and walks away. We're women. We get this illustration, right? I mean, we understand the purpose of a mirror. And we go and we look at the mirror, and when we see something that's wrong, we try to do something about it. So he's appealing to that part of us. So we understand a physical mirror, but he's drawing a spiritual parallel. And the thing is, is that we have many mirrors that are being held up to us and offering us a version of who the true us is, don't we? Some of us keep a friend handy to be a mirror, And she's usually not as good as we are at certain things. Because every time we look into that mirror, we feel really good about ourselves. And then there's another kind of girl who keeps the friend who's better at everything than she is. And every time she looks in that mirror, she loathes herself. For some of you, it's a parent who criticized you your entire upbringing. And now every time you look into that mirror, you still see this funhouse caricature of who you are. And you can't get a grasp on what you really are good at. Because someone has told you again and again that you're not. Every world religion is its own version of mirror and will hold itself up to you and say, this version makes you look good. Come be a part of this religion because it will make you feel good about who you are. It will hold up a reflection that will not break your heart, that will not point out your sin. So we have all of these different... uh, Facebook holds up a mirror, doesn't it? Did anybody uh, this week, they had the movie you could make of your life? Anybody do that? 
Yeah, you all did because I saw it all in my newsfeed. And so finally I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that too. And why do we do that? We do it. And there's nothing wrong with it. I thought it was fun. But um, we want to do it because we want to see what do I look like, right? I kind of want to see what my life looks like if it's put into movie form. So here's what my life looked like. So I'm like reading everyone's. I'm like, oh, so sweet. She had another baby and then this happened. And oh, it was really, you know, like it's perfect ugly cry material if it's someone you know, right? And so I get mine and I'm like, here comes my movie. And my movie comes up and it had a picture of a giant dead snake. And then it had a picture of some exercise equipment that I had sold at one point on Facebook. And then it's like, you know, your most popular post. And it was a post where I speculated about eating my pets during an ice storm. <laughs> and then when it starts getting faster and it's just rapid fire showing you all of your pictures, it was my oldest son, my oldest son, my oldest son, my oldest son. My, and I'm like, oh, don't let the kids pull it down. Like, I don't, you know, it looks like a, so basically someone, so I was telling my husband about it and he's like, well, basically if you just throw in Chuck Norris, you got a movie right there. So, um, you know, I got this reflection back of what my life looked like based on Facebook's plumbing of all of the content that I had put out there. And it was ridiculous. But how can we know? There are so many things that are offering us a view of who we are. We hold ourselves up against an ideal, that ideal woman in the magazine or that ideal home. And then we see ourselves in relation to that and we see a reflection. And do we like it or do we hate it? And so what James is saying to us is there is a place where you can find a true reflection of yourself. And it is right here in God's word. There are no funhouse mirrors here. This will tell you the straight up truth. But when you look in there, you need to be ready to change what you see is wrong. Don't you dare hold this so lightly that the word speaks to the truth of who you are. And because it's painful, you walk away unchanged. Don't you dare. So... When my kids were in elementary school, they all went through, you know, like one year after another. And so we got kind of used to curriculum night and what would happen. And in the first grade at the school that they were at, there was always sort of a heightened interest by the husbands in getting active in their children's educations when we got to the first grade. Because one of the women on the first grade team was a former Miss Texas. Yeah. And so she would walk out. So you're sitting there, you're like, blah, 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 spelling test on Friday, blah, 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 math, whatever, teaching math, whatever. It's first grade. You know, you're like, as long as they're not, you know, hitting somebody, I'm fine. And then she would stand up to do her portion of the program. And I could not tell you one word about what this woman was responsible for. Do you know why? Because she was incredible. I mean, she was so perfect. She would stand up there, and it's curriculum night at the elementary school. And she's wearing like these really cute strappy sandals and she's like this perfect even tan that doesn't happen in nature, I'm pretty sure. And then she had, her toes were manicured and she didn't have funky heels and she was all, you know, arms and pretty little wrists and she had accessories and her skin was so smooth. I mean, like you half expected there was Mattel stamped on the back of her neck. And then she had her hair in this little updo, and it was blonde, of course, because she's a former Miss Texas, right? Like big, poofy, perfect, like perfect. And then she knew things about makeup, you know? <laughs> she knew stuff. And you know, what I thought about her is when you're in the pageant world, it is a full-time job to be a good student of your mirror. 
And this girl was really, really good at gazing into an actual mirror and assessing what needed to change and taking action. If it needed to be plucked, she plucked it. If it needed to be bleached, she bleached it. If something needed to get smaller, she made it get smaller. If something needed to get bigger, she made it get bigger. She was a meticulous and faithful student of her mirror. And do you know what the result was? She was absolutely distracting. Now, what if you and I became such faithful students of this mirror Allowing it to point out to us the things that the Lord would have change. What if we went every day back to gaze into it steadfastly as James describes here? And rather than throwing up our hands and saying, man, it's too hard. I'm never going to get there. What if we fought the good fight and ran the good race and we made the change that was necessary by the grace of God? Do you not think that if we became really good students of this mirror, that the result in all of our key relationships might be absolutely distracting? Don't you think people would notice that? Don't you think they'd get an alien and stranger vibe from you that maybe they don't pick up on right now? Because Miss Sisk in the first grade alien and stranger. She did not look like the rest of us at all. What if in a spiritual sense we became so conformed to the image of the one who is talked about in here that people were distracted by our godliness? That'd be something else. So James says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And he calls it here the law of liberty. Why? Because it sets us free to obedience. Okay? Do you understand? He says, he says just right after that, he says, if we persevere, that we will be blessed in what we are doing. It is the law that gives us freedom because it sets us free from sin and points us on the straight and narrow path that takes us to life. There is no greater freedom than walking in obedience to the Lord. And we don't do it to earn anything. We don't do it to earn his favor or his approval. We just do it because we love him and we're so grateful that he's placed us on this path in the first place. So it's the law of liberty because it sets us free from the yoke of sin and it gives us the freedom to obey. And it puts us in mind again of how James began the letter that he is a slave. He is a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is no longer a slave to sin. He has been set free, but he has been set free so that he can obey a better master. And then he moves on, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Okay, James, how do you feel about it? Because I'm not following you here. So what would we say, how would we describe someone? He goes on in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
Okay, so here he's giving us a picture of what it means to be a doer who acts, okay? And he says there are three things that are true about someone who practices true religion. Now, this word religion can throw us off, but if we were going to describe someone who fits this, like if we were going to say, if you think you're religious, then blah, 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 who would we be talking to? In our terms, we would say, if you think you're a good Christian, let's take a look at what that really means. James is saying, if you think you're a good Christian and you don't control your tongue, you're blowing smoke. Because a person who understands what it means to follow the Lord understands that words have power and they use them in careful ways. You got to look up a lot of stuff in Proverbs this week about the use of the tongue. And and did you notice that in wisdom literature, it's the fool that is always talking? Did you pick up on that? It's always the fool. That's a very, that's a word of caution to me because we think that it's the smart person who should be talking all the time because they've got so many awesome things to say. That appeals to my ego. I like that. And I see that in myself. I want to be a multiplier of words because I want people to know that I'm the smartest girl in the room. But according to scripture, the smartest girl in the room just does this. She doesn't have to always weigh in on every opinion. And it's so interesting because I've tried this. I've taken this out for a test drive because it does not come to me naturally. So when I would go into a meeting, you know, my, my approach used to always be, well, hey, I've got the best idea, so why don't I just share it with you? And then I started writing myself a little sticky note that said, do not talk. And I would put it on the top of my notebook before I went in, and all through the meeting I'd look at it, do not talk, do not talk, do not talk. And like halfway through the meeting, I just want to rip up the stupid sticky note because all these people are driving me crazy. I have a better idea. And do you know what I found out? Two things. First of all, I found out that rarely did I actually have the best idea, and that when I was quiet and didn't voice my opinion, other people's ideas came to the surface and better things happened. So that was the first thing I found out. And the second thing I realized is that when you sit there and you do not talk, do not talk, do not talk. You remember that verse you looked up this week? Even a fool is considered wise when he holds his tongue. People thought I was wise just because I didn't say anything. But I knew. I knew I was a fool with a sticky note. But I'll tell you what. I'd rather be a fool with a sticky note than have to confess for my foolish words for the umpty zillionth time. So... True religion, understand that your tongue must be under control. He's going to develop this more in upcoming weeks, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there tonight. But then he says two other things we need to notice that that characterize true religion. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Visit widows and orphans in their affliction. Listen, we definitely need to look out for widows and orphans, but my guess is you live in the affluent suburbs and you're like, I couldn't find a widow or an orphan to save my life. Well, maybe you could, or maybe you ought to. So by all means, think globally in terms of widows and orphans because they are not few. By all means, look for ways to reach out and help. But also consider those around you because there's a general understanding we need to have of this. Widows and orphans at the time that James is writing, why do they get mentioned so often in Scripture? It's because these are the people who are overlooked These are the unseen needy in our midst. These are those who do not have an advocate. That's who the widow and the orphan were at his time. Who is that person in your church? Or who is that person in your neighborhood? Who is that child in your child's class? Who will have no advocate unless you are that for them? Because true religion says that it is your job and your joy to go and be that for that person. 
And then lastly, it says to keep oneself unstained from the world. To keep oneself unstained from the world. So basically, hey, don't, don't be out there in all the earwax, right? You can know about it. You know what's going on. But don't be stained by it. Now, how does something stain us? We have to be in close proximity to it, don't we? So if you flee from sin, what's the likelihood that it is going to get on you? And what's the other liability of being stained by the world? Have you ever spilled something on yourself? I have a little bit of a coffee problem, but I can quit whenever I want, just so you know. (laughs) And I was driving to a speaking engagement recently and had my coffee in the car and um, managed to spill it down the front of my shirt. So I had to speak at this place with the coffee all down the front of me, and I just thought, well, you know, I I made a joke out of it, and I was like, okay, but don't pay attention to that. You look at me. And you know what they did? All they could see was the stain, right? I was having a really hard time getting eye contact because they're so busy staring at the stain on my shirt. Don't be stained by the world because people will notice that instead of the important message of the gospel that you have to bring to them. I mean, this is one of my issues, I'll just tell you straight up, this is one of my issues with swearing. You know, people are like, ah, it's fine, I can say whatever I bleep and want. Okay. <laughs> but here's the problem with that. It's the second you use those words and you let your tongue be unbridled, you've identified yourself with a whole segment of the population. You've taken on that stain, and then the words that are good and life-giving that you have to give are more likely to fall on closed ears because you got a big coffee stain down the front of your shirt. So whether you think swear words are okay or bad, just consider that they're not worth it, okay? Not worth it. That's just one stupid example. You can come cuss me out afterwards if you don't like it. <laughs> well, maybe not. So James wants us to understand very clearly this week that genuine faith is actively obedient to the word. It does not merely hear, it does. So I want to ask you a couple of things. How can you be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry in that vertical relationship with the Lord this week? What has he been pushing on you about that has made you want to push it aside and not gaze intently into that mirror? Can you trust that he only gives good and perfect gifts and that his mirror can only be ultimately for your good? And then secondly, what steps do you need to take to be someone whose religion is true? Who needs you to advocate for them? Who needs you to remain unstained so that they can see you as a beacon of hope? Who needs you to be more reserved in your speech so that when you do speak, you have something important to say and worth hearing? This is a tough week. And I got to tell you, there's more tough weeks ahead of us because it's James and that's what he does to us. But I'm praying that the Lord would give us soft hearts and ears to hear because I want to be a good student of my mirror. I just want to be changed. So let's, let's keep doing this together. Let's take courage from one another and know that the Lord is for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for these words of your faithful servant, James, and we pray that they would not be lost on us. We don't want to be those who practice a false religion. 
We want to be those who hear and respond in joyful obedience to say, yes, we will, through grace, proceed to walk the path of sanctification. Lord, conform us to the image that is found in your word. Help us to be good students of our mirrors. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.